Is Democracy Declining in the American States? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Federalism is supposed to allow policy to vary with local opinion and circumstances. But American politics has nationalized, with many seeing states as arenas for national political debates among partisan networks, rather than opportunities for state-specific solutions. And states are even fighting about the basic ground rules for democracy. This week, I talk with Jacob Grumbach of the University of Washington about his new Princeton book, Laboratories Against Democracy. He finds that nationalization made state policy respond more to party control, with legislators following activist donors over public opinion, parties copying electorally successful policies only from states controlled by the same party, and Republican states causing Democratic backsliding. I think you'll learn a lot from our conversation. Let's start with a summary. What were the big findings and takeaways? That sounds great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Um, so uh, the big point of this book, the main argument is that there is a new kind of collision between the decentralized institutions of American federalism that put a great amount of authority at the lower level, the state level in the U.S., even relative to other federalist democracies around the world. That collision with those decentralized institutions and newly nationalized, nationally coordinated and polarized political parties, the Democratic and Republican parties. And that uh, when those institutions and party coalitions collide, you see big changes at both the national and state level in terms of American public policy and uh, uh, political outcomes. So federalism is supposed to be something that can help uh, governance be closer to the people uh, and can help it better reflect differences across uh, geographic areas. Uh, how well does it live up to that? What's kind of the, the base, uh, what's the best case we can make for that? And uh, what's, what's holding it back? Yeah, so uh, uh, that sort of decentralization and customization and tailoring of policy to the wishes of constituents in a large, you know, heterogeneous, diverse country like the U.S. is a potential real advantage of institutional decentralization and federalism, right? People can live uh, under the uh, particular policy regimes they may want. Um, and this sort of argument goes back to all the way to the Federalist Papers and James Madison um, that it would produce national harmony in a large, diverse country. And uh uh, to some extent, there is real virtue in that theory. Um, at the same time, the nationalization of uh, American politics and the parties means that that function has really diminished. So now partisan control of state government really drives policy outcomes. And you see big swings in public policy when uh, party control changes, even when constituent opinion doesn't change all that much. And that's because the state level parties are now integrated into the sort of national party networks in ways that they weren't uh, through long periods of American history, where you had a much more decentralized set of parties, where, for example, in the mid 20th century, northern and southern Democratic Party uh, parties in the states were highly distinct and decentralized on key issues. So these arguments over federalism also um, take place within politics. So what, what is kind of the political role of this this argument in favor of, of federalism? Uh, and is it kind of consistently a conservative argument or is it just a, an argument that, that people out of power in the national government make? Absolutely. So I'd say, I mean, in the late 18th century, when uh, Madison and John Jay and other founders are you know, trying to argue in favor of a U.S. Constitution um, beyond the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation, of course, highly decentralized, you know, essentially gave no power to a national government to do any sort of taxation or, uh, you know, uh, military coordination and so forth. That proved to be problematic for uh, uh, funding the, you know, just finished Revolutionary War and so forth. So the early arguments were, you know, the virtues of this uh, sort of multi-tiered governmental system that would have some authority for the states and some for the national government. Um, it was to some extent an instrumental argument to uh, try to get the colonies to go along with this new system. But into the future, you see federalism and uh, support for decentralization institutionally playing a role in a lot of political movements. So um, importantly, there's one long-term states rights-based movement that's about uh, uh, that was essentially supportive of slavery. And then later, uh, uh, segre segregation and Jim Crow, the idea that states should be left alone and the national government shouldn't ban slavery. Uh, 
or later on uh, uh, enforced desegregation. Um, but then you have a series of other uh, arguments, and there's some debate about whether they're affiliated with these sort of support for Jim Crow based arguments. But there are other uh, uh, moments of arguments for decentralization in the post-war period in the U.S. by uh, political economists, uh, 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 legal elites, and a sort of legal conservative movement um, that was uh, supportive of devolving especially the welfare state to the state level. Um, and we saw uh, some bipartisan consensus on that through, for example, uh, Clinton welfare reform. And uh, that was, again, about uh, uh, main arguments there were that uh, the states were closer to constituents and that there were better incentives for lower level governmental actors to engage in sort of efficient and responsive policymaking than sort of distant Washington, D.C., as well as the idea that people can move to different jurisdictions that they may want to live so that overall in a sort of uh, a game theory sense produces more efficient governance if that uh, if people are allowed to vote with their feet and move to places um, where uh, government is more efficient or responsive to their needs. So those tended to be conservative. But over the past 20 years, we've also seen a progressive federalism argument, uh, uh, for example, by Heather Gerken at Yale Law School. And that argument uh, has really focused on in the post-civil rights period, they say, with enough national level enforcement of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act of 1964 and 1965, decentralization is really advantageous for racial minorities and for new immigrant groups that are not uh, large enough national populations to achieve sort of national forms of representation, especially descriptive representation, but in state and local governments, majority minority states like California or majority minority uh, cities may achieve a different level of representation for racial minorities and new immigrant groups. So that's a progressive federalism argument. You also hear that in uh, some sort of climate change movements. So uh, a great book by Leah Stokes, Short Circuiting Policy, uh, has, a, would say, a more optimistic take on institutional decentralization, the idea that uh, climate activists and sort of green energy firms can establish beachheads in some progressive states and build up capacity to advocate for national climate reform. Um, you also see, finally, another sort of progressive argument for decentralization is based on uh, uh, movements that have uh, supported, especially the franchise for women and women's suffrage in the early 20th century, that that evolved in a state-by-state -state, uh, capacity until it bubbled up to the national level. And absent decentralization, some might argue that those movements would have had a tougher time. There's those are a tremendous number of uh, uh, sort of long term theories of the advantages of decentralization in historical context. But my book is really arguing that most of those it's hard to know empirically, like how real those mechanisms were in the past. Right. We don't have amazing data or well identified studies, but I think it's plausible that many of those mechanisms really worked. But I'm arguing that the nationalization of the parties really does throw a wrench in most of those advantageous mechanisms. And you see, you know, uh, one small example would be in the, you know, uh, progressive federalism and representation of racial minorities and uh, immigrant groups is that racial inequality is larger than now than in the period before this heavy decentralization that began in the 1970s through uh, through the present. So you've been uh, working on related projects uh, since uh, graduate school um, when I know you were um, trying to collect as much data, um, you know, going going as far back as, as you can on policy differences across the states. But you were doing it in this time period in which you uh, saw more significant threats to democracy coming from the state level. So tell us about kind of the evolution of, of this project uh, from from where you started to, to where the book ended up. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, you know, part of a, I hope to be part of a, there's a great network of people studying state policy, including yourself, Matt, uh, uh, with red state blues and so forth. So there's a uh, sort of debate about policy polarization in the states um, and the importance of state level policy changes over the past generation, or to some extent, for example, with uh, Devin Coey and Chris Warshaw's great forthcoming book, uh, Dynamic Democracy, they go back much further to the 1930s. Um, and, but in this more recent period, we have clearly seen divergence in policy between red and blue states with 
uh, states with divided governments where the governor and uh, state legislative chamber don't share party things somewhere in the middle. Um, but you see across issue areas, you know, uh, gun control and gun rights, uh, uh, climate policy and climate regulation, environmental policy, taxation, labor relations. Um, now on steroids, you're seeing uh, reproductive rights do the same sort of divergence and uh, facilitated by the Supreme Court uh, ruling and the Dobbs decision. Um, really across issue areas with a couple of key ex exceptions, we've seen strong divergence in policy outcomes across red and blue states and just in general between states. So the variation between states is not you know, not at the level of pre-1964, 1965 differences between, for example, Jim Crow and non-Jim Crow states or states that enfranchised women or not, um, states prior to the New Deal that had some old age insurance and others that had where senior citizens were essentially all in poverty. Um, you know, these divergences are not as big as those, but they're very meaningful. The most meaningful we've seen since the sort of long civil rights and New Deal period and the breakdown of the New Deal coalition in the 70s. Um, so now your state of residence is much more tied to uh, your sort of relationship to uh, government in a way that uh, was not true as national policymakers were setting floors in the states uh, in terms of policy in the mid 20th century. But also, not only that, so I mentioned the Jim Crow period where there's huge variation across states and policy. But during that time, it was not really predicted by party, right? So Southern Jim Crow states were also democratically controlled. And then North, you know, sort of Midwestern, you had Democratic parties uh, in Illinois, Michigan and New York and so forth that were these sort of labor civil rights coalitions. Um, and then in the South, you had segregationists, much more conservative Democrats. Uh, and really, the Democratic Party controlled uh, Deep South state legislatures in many cases through the 2000s, I think we uh, don't recognize. But what that means is now, by contrast to that Jim Crow period, this variation in policy across states is now extremely well predicted by the party that controls the state government. Um, so that's part that's policy variation and policy polarization in the states. But your question was great, Matt, where, uh, you know, I started this, pro you know, this project in the early mid 2010s, you know, noticing that the Midwest uh, Midwestern states that were becoming Republican were uh, changing policies without much uh, change in public opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, in the similar period, you were seeing coastal states really ramp up their climate policies and things like that and explain that divergence. But then I also, over the 2010s, began to notice, as others did, that at the state level, one of the most important set of policy changes was around democratic institutions like election administration and districting, that that was actually a key to this policy divergence. It wasn't just, for example, taxation or, you know, reproductive rights or marijuana legalization. It was actually the, the sort of institutional level or levers of American democracy itself that were diverging. So you uh, do look at a lot of different issue-specific trends, and you're able to compare um, over time. So what, what can we learn uh, from those, including the exceptions, uh, where, for example, criminal justice policy seems to have grown much more punitive, and then maybe in the most recent period, a little bit less punitive across states. Um, uh, some of those that you found uh, trending liberal across uh, states, might, maybe in response to public opinion, what, what can we learn from those issue differences? Absolutely. So in terms of uh, just the, you know, partisan polarization of policy with red states diverging from blue states, you do see this across, you know, a vast array of issue areas, like I mentioned before. But some key exceptions are one, education policy is a partial exception. You've studied this, Matt, um, and sort of, you know, I think you would have great answers of why the puzzle of non-polarization on education policy with respect to the interest group environment potentially uh, surrounding, uh, you know, teachers unions, reformists, sort of charter school networks, uh, you know, uh, parents, uh, the political parties. There's uh, 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 that's not my deepest area of expertise, but uh, I would say probably the interest group environment explains some lack of partisan polarization on education policy in the states. Um, with there's some divergence on, you know, higher education spending and things like that, but not as much as you'd expect given the other issue areas. But then the big exception that I focus on is criminal justice policy, which, like you mentioned, uh, since the 1970s, you've seen massive buildup of 
the incarcerated population in the U.S., you know, outpacing all other, you know, democratic and authoritarian regimes across the world in per capita and absolute numbers. And uh, crucially, uh, criminal justice policy during this tough on crime buildup in terms of policing policy, right, on the front end, how policing is done, as well as how incarceration and enforcement and sentencing are done, uh, you know, trended more authoritarian across the board and uh, was not that difference in red and blue states. You can tell a lot more about a state's sort of, you know, carceral population and its policing based on it, things like its demographics, its poverty, its racial demographics and its crime rates than you can about its partisanship. And I think that's a really crucial puzzle for so if there's any PhD students, you know, about to advance to candidacy or working on prospectus or something, listening, like, I think one of the biggest puzzles and a huge opening for an amazing dissertation is to understand this puzzle a little bit uh, deeper. I engage in some, you know, theorizing and explaining that uh, uh, sort of institutional insulation of police departments and of uh, sort of correctional officers and prison systems, they're institutionally insulated from democratic inputs in ways that you don't quite see in other uh, democracies around the world that have more centralized uh, policing and uh, carceral systems. So they're in the criminal justice and politics literature. There's a, you know, series of theories of why the tough on crime buildup. One is uh, uh, public opinion, a punitive public sort of backlash to whether backlash to civil rights or rising crime rates in the 70s. Another uh, would be the uh, sort of institutional buildup of DAs and prosecutors that becomes a sort of self-fulfilling cycle of, of uh, you know, trying to compete to rise in the ranks um, of the prosecutorial and eventually political system breeds sort of entrepreneurship among DAs. Um, innovation sort of semi-technologically in terms of plea deals and things like that. Uh, as well as there's a sort of, I guess it would be a maybe more Marxian sort of argument from like Marie Gottschalk and others that it's about profiteering, whether it's in terms of prison labor uh, in public prisons or the private prison system. So all of those, I think, would help contribute to an explanation of why it's not partisan control and it's these other uh, forces driving criminal justice policy. But I think there's a huge opening but what I really am observing when I look at state governments where governors and then mayors are the commanders in chief of police forces, the way, you know, the president is the commander in chief of the armed forces, and that these commanders in chief do not appear to have the capacity to sort of uh, change the behavior of their, uh, especially of their police department. So uh, I was earlier considering, okay, you know, Democratic candidates at the state and local level, especially in recent years, have been campaigning on criminal justice based changes and, you know, Black Lives Matter for a long time. Like if you listen to, you know, Pete Buttigieg was mayor of South Bend and like in recent years, he sounds like, you know, like a real activist on this front. But then as mayor of South Bend or you look at like, you know, Bill de Blasio as mayor of New York, who campaigned on a policing reform ticket when the rubber meets the road. It doesn't happen. And uh, one explanation is that this is all messaging and those politicians, candidates don't actually want to reform the institutions. But I think now a uh, clearer, more predictive theory is that they don't have the institutional capacity to reform sort of institutionally insulated uh, uh, bureaucracies in this way compared to other bureaucracies in American government. So you look at a broad array of uh, policies, 130 uh, some policies, um, but uh, it, it seems to leave out kind of the size and structure of, of state governments um, in um, in a way that I think might might suggest more convergence. Um, just that state government budgets are being much more um, determined by federal pass through um, uh, money and are thus kind of spending money in, in similar areas over time and building some similar agencies and institutions over time. Um, so I guess to what extent do you think your policy measure is is capturing that or um, is masking some some convergence at the same time as these sort of policy matters in the legislature um, uh, are diverging? I think that's fair. Um, so in some work uh, 
although I would push back a little bit in some work with uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson in uh, the edited volume American Political Economy, we do look at uh, 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 regional transfers compared to other uh, developed democracies, including federal systems. And the U.S. does have less uh, sort of interstate transfers through national governance than uh, other federal systems do, Germany, Canada, Mexico, India, and so forth, especially the, the wealthier democracies like Germany. Um, so, uh, but that's true that uh, on other sorts of areas like, you know, policing again and incarceration is like a really good example of what you're saying here, Matt, is that uh, huge amounts of federal transfers to state and local police forces and carceral systems where, uh, you know, there is a little bit in American po public politics, you see a little bit overemphasis on the 1994 crime bill, for example, that passed Congress and signed by Bill Clinton, um, that uh, contributed huge sums of money to state and local policing and incarceration, um, and established some, you know, standards on, uh, on criminal sentencing. But, uh, uh, so it's it's true that the national government really does uh, has produced some convergence in these ways, but uh, I think the overall share. There's also in my book and in the appendix of a paper of mine, I look at uh, overall uh, spending as a share of GDP and taxation as a share of GDP and employment as a share of GDP at the state level compared relative to national, and it's not exactly clear. Like in some ways, the state level has become more important for, you know, as a percentage of your tax burden of the average American, the state level has grown a larger share uh, uh, over recent decades. I think you're right though, that there's some really clear sort of, you know, hard to capture in like ideological unidimensional space like you're talking about, but there, yeah, there's absolutely some uh, crucial federal transfers that are producing some level of convergence. Yeah. Last thing is like in crises like COVID and things like I think there's great work by Phil Rocco on automatic stabilizers, which policies nationally produce automatic stabilizers uh, uh, and which don't in terms of, you know, unemployment insurance administered at the state level uh, uh, and in downturns, uh, uh, which policies provide counter cyclical fiscal policy to the states from the national government. That's a really crucial understudied area of public administration and policy. So you um, track the relationship between um, uh, public opinion and these policy changes um, and have a somewhat different uh, story than, than others. Um, but I think it might mostly be in, um, in uh, interpretation. Uh, that is, you find that um, the polarization is not due to changes in state opinion, um, but there has been a sort of sorting where the most conservative states uh, now have uh, the most uh, conservative uh, policies. So how should we interpret uh, that that evidence um, in, in light of uh, this, this question of, about representation and responsiveness? Really nicely put, Matt. So uh, one first is that take a snapshot at two different periods of time once let's say i don't know in the 80s or 90s or something like that and one today of state level opinion and policy there's that sort of cross sectional responsiveness to the most conservative places that have the most conservative policy and liberal most liberal policy and that relationship is stronger now so that could be evidence of long term sorting and uh Devin Cohen Chris Warshaw's uh book uh, dynamic democracy i think uh, one underemphasis, I'm really excited for that book, uh, not as much on what I just said, that sort of cross-sectional responsiveness point. They actually do a great analysis of what's called policy congruence, which is our majorities living under the policy that they want. Does public opinion majorities match the policy regime? That's a harder statistical thing to do because you have to look at specific policies. You can't just like arrange them in a left-right ideological space. Um, so I think that's great. And they do show that there's some uh, increased convergence in part due to uh, they actually show, I think from my reading, it looks like the liberal states are becoming uh, much more congruent by uh, uh, sort of ratcheting up liberal policies in liberal states for the most part. Um, I buy that argument. Um, uh, I think the cross-sectional responsiveness thing, I think, is a tougher thing to interpret. Uh, there, but could be evidence of that sort of sorting. But what I'm really focused on, and I think this is all, you know, like we're saying, it's all pretty consistent. And uh, Cohen Warshaw, 
uh, would emphasize that, you know, the positive aspect of over long stretches of time, sort of most of the time, majorities, the policy comes in line with majorities. So when I worked with Chris Warshaw on some uh, abortion opinion and policy in the States, writing recently a couple of pieces in the Washington Post monkey cage, and then I wrote one in Politico, um, Chris has really emphasized to me that, you know, like he really anticipates that uh, abortion policy in these states that are poised to ban abortion, but have, you know, publics that support legal abortion, but have Republican state legislatures poised to ban it, that they will come in line with public opinion, very likely and not end up banning abortion or roll, re remove an abortion ban that uh, is in their constitution or something. So I think that's, that's true. That remains to be seen. I'm not quite as, I guess, optimistic on that front. But the big thing I'm emphasizing and that we all find, but I think is important to emphasize, is that these policy changes within states, right, across time, whether you set it up in a sort of any, statistically as any within state estimator, or you can think about it, do changes in, in opinion result in changes in policy? And you don't see that as much on most areas. Again, there's a couple key exceptions. But I think that really emphasizes the role of groups and parties in a nationalized political context where now, again, you know, Wisconsin or, you know, some other uh, states had, uh, you know, or in the Deep South states aligning to the Republican Party and things like that. Um, you would expect on some of these areas that there would be some movement. You know, I think now abortion policy is a nice example where abortion support in most of these purple states is at like the national average, like 60% support for legal abortion. And it's just very stable. And then we're seeing dramatic changes in public policy on abortion. That's predicted very well by the party that controls state government enabled by the Supreme Court. But I think that dynamic and thinking there's no real public opinion story to be told about abortion policy. It's about the real marshalling of political resources by a really successful sort of activist group network over and sort of there, uh, uh, you know, with a judicial politics strategy over a long stretch of time. And that is clear. The same thing with like restrictions on labor organizing in Midwestern states and Pennsylvania over the, you know, past 20 years or so. Those aren't predicted by, you know, Wisconsin, uh, you know, restricting public sector labor, like was not preceded by people saying, oh, you know, like I'm now not as supportive of public sector labor or things like that. Right. This is uh, facilitated by, to some extent, national groups like Alex Hertel Fernandez studies and the American Legislative Exchange Council, American for Prosperity and others that provide legislative subsidies to these un sort of less professional uh, legislatures, as well as just the forces of nationalized policy. And all of this in context, I think Steve Rogers is going to have a good forthcoming book as well on sort of lack of accountability in state legislatures to public opinion. But in national policy context, I also Dan Hopkins book, uh, The Increasingly United States shows this behaviorally, but people, voters are not, don't have much capacity to hold state level politicians accountable in part because of the nationalized political context, the nationalization of media, decline of state and local journalism, and so forth. It makes it much more group uh, dominated and uh, partisan dominated and not as uh, uh, sort of accountable and responsive to dynamics and opinion. Um, but the exceptions that you sort of alluded to are really important. So I do find really strong responsiveness within states on marijuana policy and especially on uh, uh, LGBT or really just LGB in this case in the policy measure rights. So prior to uh, the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage, for example, same-sex marriage policy and related uh, sort of, you know, non-discrimination in employment based on sexuality types of civil rights policies, those really were, uh, appear to be driven by changes in public opinion. And those are two policy areas that we've seen big swings in American public opinion over the past generation. That's different than abortion, which has remained very stable since Roe v. Wade. Um, but in those two areas, like you see massive cultural change in American politics, um, they're somewhat simple, under, like easily understood uh, areas. In some cases, there's ballot refer referenda um, on those policies. All of that created 
a quite responsive uh, sort of set of policy areas in those two exception areas. So uh, because in part because you don't find as much public opinion responsiveness, uh, you move to other culprits, especially interest groups uh, and use campaign finance data. But I think uh, when I say that people will have in mind a model of interest groups uh, donating directly to legislators to win their uh, votes. But instead, you have um, this theory and evidence based on uh, networks of joint donors between interest groups uh, and candidates. accounting for polarization. So talk us through that evidence and and how we should interpret it versus kind of the usual stories that are given about interest group influence. Yeah. And I'm adding to a big body of uh, evidence and literature on campaign finance and money in politics and the role of individual and group donors in uh, affecting public policy. And especially at the state level, I think you really can observe this at lower levels where your money, the more bang for your buck if you're a donor. Uh, at lower levels, there's less sort of, uh, you know, media attention and monitoring by constituents. Um, they're less professionalized. So they these the money and lobbying serves as a legislative subsidy to be more productive in passing policy. Um, so you see things like, you know, great work by Anna Harvey and Taylor Mattia on Citizens United and how that affected uh, state legislative ideology, moving the Republican Party, making the Republican Party more successful and moving it rightward. And I knew Marty Gillens and some co-authors have a short article in the APSR on sort of pro-corporate policy as a result of Citizens United. But in the longer term, in poli-sci, you know, there's been the debate, does money in politics matter really at all? Then there's another debate about that I'm fitting in is uh, uh, distinguishing between different types of donors and the effects they may have on state level politics. So typically you hear, okay, individual donors are sort of, you know, individuals out atomized in the country, you know, like me or friend Jake, I'm like looking at some co-partisan politician and I'm like inspired by them or whatever. And maybe they're across the country in this nationalized political context. And, you know, they're uh, millennial like me. I think they're cool. I donate 20 bucks. Um, You know, that can be polarizing in a national political context or at least nationalizing and creating more partisan uh, uh, consistency and stuff like that. And that, by contrast, there's a set of, you know, corporate and labor and interest group donors that are, uh, have been found to be essentially donate more to moderate politicians of both parties, especially, uh, trade associations and large corporate firms. And that's, uh, I would argue probably because they're off the dimension, they are able to, exert influence without having to be in, uh, they can really play with both parties to achieve, for example, uh, affect the fine print of, let's say, some sort of obscure chemical regulation or financial regulation or something like that. Um, I wouldn't say they're necessarily like forces of great moderation, but rather they have a different dimension of uh, interest there. But regardless, uh, groups, organized groups and individuals are not uh, you know, necessarily so separate. So there's a set of groups, especially activist groups, that are clearly comprised of individual activists. So individual donors and these group donors are, it's much more of a blurry line between them if you're talking about the religious right, like focus on the family or on among uh, liberals, sort of moveon.org in the 2000s. Um, groups like this, they help to coordinate and aggregate and increase the voice of their sort of activist members. So uh, these are, I call them interest group activists. They're individuals that are affiliated with nationally oriented political groups like the National Rifle Association or whatnot, um, as well as donating themselves to state level politicians. And I argue that those uh, contributions from those interest group activists are gonna be much more influential than just a one-off individual who's not affiliated with these types of groups. that is because uh, these individual activists from the coordinating national group have much greater information in politics. So if you go to the NRA website, for example, you can see there they have scripts for how to lobby state legislators about uh, uh, gun control policies and gun rights policies. Uh, they uh, give you information on how to vote and contribute uh, in state legislative primaries, extremely low information environments. You know, I'm a poli-sci professor, I don't really know how to vote in state legislative primaries. I rely on endorsements and things like that. Those really matter. And that means that those interest group activists have really helped play a role, especially on these 
less economic policies, more social, cultural policies have helped, I think, explain policy polarization. Uh, uh, I look, I only have data, sort of the campaign finance data back to the early 2000s, but I think that helps explain some uh, uh, divergence here. And I'm, again, I'm just fitting, I'm trying to fit this mechanism, these interest group activists in campaign finance within the broader set of campaign finance, finance mechanisms of, you know, other ordinary individual donors, group donors, as well as really, you can't observe them as much, especially in the dark money Citizens United period, but the sort of Alex Hertel Fernandez, Theda Scotch Pole style, you know, Coke network and large, you know, extremely large uh, donors that have sort of interest group networks themselves um, uh, uh, um, that have been really influential over the states. But walk us through the mechanism a little bit, because it doesn't seem to be just that their dollars are worth more than others' dollars. Uh, you have some evidence that they really are the people who contact their state legislators and know them and so forth. So, so what are what are yeah, what kind of influence are we looking at? Yeah, thanks for reading. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, one you see that uh, in terms of self-described ideology and policy positions, these interest group donors are uh, more polarized and more uh, consistently partisan, right? They uh, uh, so. Uh, in terms of preferences, they may be different than other donors. But then I think even more importantly is uh, I do observe that they're all else equal, more likely to contact legislators. So uh, we know money in politics, it's hard to observe like causal processes of money in politics having effects. But I think it's clear one reason for this is that money in politics is part of a broader set of political strategies. Um, where it could be like, I forget, maybe Lee Drutman or somebody coined the phrase of like, it's like, don't hard money contributions like I'm observing are like bringing wine to a party um, where it operates in facilitating and greasing the wheels for all sorts of other forms of political influence, especially lobbying and lobbying gets a bad rap. Like there's some, of course, highly unequal lobbying um, and dominance by super elite, well-resourced groups and individuals. That's very clear. But also lobbying is just regular activists and citizens going to talk to legislators and bureaucrats and councils and things like that. Um, and there, if you are a donor, as we saw with uh, Josh Cullen and David Brockman's amazing field experiment of individual donors, you're more likely to get a meeting, all else equal, if you, uh, with a legislator if you're a donor than just an ordinary constituent. So again... This money facilitates access to politicians, right? It also facilitates uh, the individuals being able to say, I'm part of an organized group, right? It's not just me. I'm sending a signal for a broader group. Uh, like the, you know, I'm not just a regular gut fan of guns and collector. I'm part of the NRA. Um, and you have more information. So the Colin Brockman experiment is so cool. And I think it's underemphasized that they, in their field experiment there, they were having the meeting that these donors or constituents are trying to get is a, about an obscure piece of chemical regulation of like golf course based chemical fertile, like uh, pesticide used in like golf courses that without this organization, I, I somewhat doubt that these individuals would really know how to lobby on that obscure policy. So that information really matters in these low information environments where um, that organization really pays dividends. And I think uh, uh, that's one thing that's, again, hard for politi quant political science, especially I'm implicated here too, <laughs> you know, doing our best to observe these really uh, multifaceted and interactive ways that money in politics uh, can influence outcomes, especially at lower levels of government. So you also track uh, copying of policies from state to state um, and find consistent with other others evidence that uh, Republican Democratic states are increasingly copying one another. Um, but you you do find some responsiveness within those party networks based on uh, the, the success of policies or signals of the success of policies. So is that a sign that you know, you might see Republican states uh, learning from the success of Indiana and Democratic states might learn from the success of Minnesota uh, or and is that different than the kind of processes that people talked about, about ALEC passing model bills, for example? Yeah, no. So, uh, the, you know, Lewis Brandeis's Laboratories of Democracy Theory, super longstanding, uh, hopeful theory that, you know, policy experimentation in uh, the 50 states or their own. Uh, 
48 or fewer when Brandeis said this, but uh, that they would converge on sort of best practices, reject failed policy experiments. Um, and uh, a different multiple mechanisms we could observe that would be consistent or sort of patterns we could observe that would be consistent with this sort of policy learning. It's hard to disentangle learning and sort of just homophily, um, but uh, consistent with learning would be if policies that are more successful in an economic sense in something like reducing unemployment or increasing economic productivity or uh, uh, growth state product in states are more likely to be emulated by other states or politically that policies that are associated with better electoral outcomes for the incumbents that pass that policy would be more likely to be emulated. So what I observe is this really minimal to no economic uh, sort of based emulation. Uh, I think, you know, in a multi-tiered federal system, it's hard to know how much we would find given the fact that the national government and national economic crises and things affect the economy. But I think that's suggestive that there's not a ton, you know, doesn't look like very consistent with economic learning. But I do find, like you said, within states controlled by the same party, electorally successful policies are more likely to be emulated. So like when blue Minnesota passes a series of policies and then its state legislative incumbents and gubernatorial incumbents do a little bit better, those policies are more likely to be emulated by other blue states, but not by other, by not by states that are not also blue. Um, but like you said, you know, that really diminishes the overall capacity of policy learning. We're not going to achieve complete convergence on best practices in a theoretical sense, but it produces at least within party convergence and learning. And, you know, that it potentially could be more efficient than having one national system, potentially, um, the convergence on two sort of sets of best practices and two different sort of like epistemological scientific sort of policymaking communities is potential. But I would say it really uh, does undercut the overall mechanism of policy learning and convergence on best practices to not have states learn from each other. And I think the reasons behind this, in addition to the overall nationalization of policy, like two mechanisms are, one is that in a nationally polarized context, you don't want to give uh, evidence that the other party's policies work. So you don't want to contribute to the body of evidence by passing a, you know, cross party policy and having it work in your state and then them going like, oh, that was a great idea by the other party. And then more importantly, I would say are the networks of expert groups and interest groups that help develop policy have become two different networks. So Kate Krimmel uh, has uh, nice American political development work on national policy, the sort of divergent networks, separate to partisan networks of interest groups, but I think in terms of like expert communities as well that help, uh, uh, you know, give testimony at state legislatures about what, you know, good or bad policy and more quote objective senses are, those have really polarized as well. So one uh, important set of uh, policies that you find diverging between uh, the states is on uh, democracy itself and voting rules and other kinds of um, institutional processes that, that give advantage uh, to uh, each, each of the parties, or especially that Republicans are seeing an advantage in uh, trying to restrict uh, electoral rules and, and voting. Um, so, so talk about that evidence, and is this... Um, an example of the same processes that are going on in the rest of the book, or is this something um, distinct? Yeah, so uh, that's right. So we've seen big divergence, especially in the 2010s on these uh, democratic institutions, uh, legislative districting, uh, election administration, um, responsiveness to public opinion. We could also, this is in thinking about electoral democracy, right? Democracy is, of course, much broader. There's sort of elements of civil liberties and liberal democracy. There's elements of uh, in some theorists of social democracy would say egalitarianism. There's, you know, Habermasian deliberation, you know, there's a whole body of democratic theory out there. But focusing on, uh, you know, being an Americanist here, Americanist quant will focus on electoral democracy. And there you do see divergence. And it's similar to the divergence you see in other policy areas. Um, but uh, I would say it's distinct because they are the, you know, levers of democracy itself and can uh, confer partisan advantages uh, that can build 
on themselves and also, uh, you know, contribute to democratic backsliding at all levels. So it's really significant that the U.S. is really unique across the world where other federal systems don't put really all of the administration of elections at the state and to some extent county levels. It's very unique around the world, right, to have all these separate election administrations. And what I'm arguing is, so going again, going back to the Federalist Papers, there's a theory of double security, that decentralization in a time of, uh, you know, really protects against a would-be autocrat nationally, right? They can't capture 50 different sort of election administrations. And you saw, you know, in the Trump administration, you saw a bunch of Democratic governors like, you know, we stand against this threat, you know, and when a would-be autocrat's in national power, that's like a really great, you know, thing to have that decentralization. But what I'm arguing here is that also institutional decentralization can affect the probability that a would-be autocrat can take national power in the first place. So while we don't really know the perfect balance of, okay, maybe decentralization by allowing sort of less democratic coalitions to backslide democracy within states, which affects sort of representation at all levels, we don't know how, you know, balancing that between the protection of when you do have a national potential autocrat, this decentralization, those are two sides of the coin, right? But I think we heard over the past six years or so really, really strong arguments for why this decentralization was really good to have in this time, right? But I don't think we emphasize the idea that over long stretches of time, through uh, changes to election administration and legislative districting, you can change who uh, achieves a legislative majority in a state as well as uh, who even achieves a U.S. House majority. And now with the potential for the independent state legislature's uh, doctrine to be ruled upon in the Supreme Court, you could really have state legislatures determining, you know, electoral college votes for presidential candidates, um, meaning that a single swing state legislature could really subvert an election. Uh, That really means that democratic backsliding in the states is going to be extremely important for national democracy and democratic performance in a way we haven't appreciated. So I think it's distinct in those substantive ways, but the pattern is remarkably consistent with these other uh, uh, areas of policy divergence. And, and are the mechanisms too, like, is this, um, you know, it just happens that, that Republicans happen to be on the, the side of all of this, but what they're doing is they're observing uh, that they're implementing rules that help their side win in other states uh, and Democrats, um, you know, might be observing that same day voter registration or uh, things that expand uh, early voting or other voting opportunities are also likely to help their, their states um, or, you know, is there, I guess, is there a a distinct pattern here? Yeah. So uh, I would say, I mean, it's interesting to contrast this with the Jim Crow period. So the Jim Crow period, sort of the fight over democracy was very much not as partisan nationally, right? Like, again, the Democratic Party highly decentralized with respect to voting rights for Black Americans. Um, uh, Now it is really sorted by uh, partisanship, which is really interesting. I think that's about the nationalization of the parties. Um, and you're right, to some extent, like I would never say any politician, you know, we can take that they're not virtuous, you know, this is all some prisoner's dilemma, you know, where they're trying to seek advantages. That's fine. But uh, it's really important to notice that there is asymmetry with respect to these democratic institutions. And then it's not because of some, you know, I think actually, to be honest, on the Democratic Party elite side, you see this nationally, there's actually it's not like a good thing, but there is an ideological commitment to norms that we have to accept that they have. <laughs> like, uh, and that's a seems like a lame answer, but it seems also quite clear that in uh, they do not seem to want to erode norms, even when it would advantage uh, the Democratic Party. And we see this with respect to you know filibuster, statehood, court packing type of things. Um, but on the Republican side, uh, you know, there's debates about why Democratic backsliding in the Jim Crow period. It's really localized regional racial conflict um, over uh, uh, public goods, desegregation of public goods, land redistribution, uh, economic redistribution, uh, so forth. Now, it's I'm not finding that there are local regional political dynamics driving democratic changes in the U.S. states. Rather, it's driven by party and especially the National Republican Party. So democratically controlled states are much more similar to divided governmental states than they are to Republican controlled states. 
In those Republican-controlled states, we have to then, if it's not local racial conflict or influxes of new Latino immigrants or any of these things, that some, uh, you know, of the behavioral race and ethnic politics scholarship has really found with respect to, you know, new immigrant groups produces a backlash or something like that in local areas. I think that's not incorrect, but it's not really explaining this overall uh, changes in democratic uh, outcomes in the U.S. states. Um, rather, it's about national uh, party coalitions. And then we have to ask, why is the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, why are they different with respect to these democratic institutions? Um, and why do they see them as more or less advantageous, you know, different sort of uh, uh, regimes of democratic institutions? And I think in the Republican Party, on the one hand, my finding about race suggests it's not about race in some narrow sense. But I think it's clear that mass politics is highly racialized and sociocultural right now in the U.S. in the culture like this seems very clear. Um, so I would say it's it's about nat at the mass level. There is this nationalized racial conflict that does seem to be associated at the more voter base level. The Republican base has seemed to in part rejected democratic institutions to some extent due to racial threat nationally rather than at the state level. But I think also the Dan Ziblatt style of argument about conservative parties and how they treat democracy is really crucial. And that's based on a sort of economic redistribution. He has a series of papers, co-authors, great set of research on this historically, that conservative parties have this dilemma where, you know, the masses want to redistribute the economic resources of the party of business and so forth. Um, so it's advantageous for them. It's important for them to introduce other areas of conflict where they can uh, win because, you know, cut taxes for billionaires is not an especially popular, you know, policy agenda, the Republican policy agenda economically during the Trump administration set records with for like unpopularity of their main agenda items of repeal the Affordable Care Act and uh, high end tax cuts. Um, the sociocultural aspects were very much more popular with uh, with voters, um, uh, including to some extent, you know, all the uh, discussion about vote, you know, white voters in the Midwest and things like that. Um, so I think that combination, the Republican Party is somewhat unique. We have a, through Duverger's law and so forth. We have two parties in the U.S. But the fact that one is a coalition of uh, unlike European far right parties, it's a coalition of the real sort of some elite. Uh, highly wealthy interests on the economic policy front, as well as an electoral base that's uh, sort of right-wing populist, uh, anti-immigration, and sort of uh, uh, a racial threat-based uh, sociocultural threat politics. I think that's a unique combination that produces a unique opposition to dem uh, democracy, even compared to European anti-immigration policies, uh, parties that are don't have that sort of business coalition or the sort of Tories, the business, but like slightly more cosmopolitan conservative parties in uh, the developed world. The Republican Party seems a little bit unique. So as you say, your findings are sort of reconcilable uh, with this broader uh, argument that American racial history is kind of central to our democratic backsliding. But on the face of it, you do have a couple of findings that seem uh, inconsistent uh, with that centrality. One is that these institutions are not really changing in places with either high black populations or growing uh, Hispanic populations. And another is that the most um, kind of uh, direct uh, policies that have been implicated um, in racial hierarchy in the criminal justice sphere are not uh, going along these same um, lines. So how does that make you revise, uh, I guess, the, the, the role of um, America's racial history in, in its current uh, democratic backsliding. Oh, a third finding is just obviously that this was occurring before uh, the Trump administration, right. that the state stuff is not a reaction uh, to that. Yeah, no, really important. I mean, it's clear that uh, the Tea Party moment of the early 2010s, I think some great work, you know, Matt Barreto and Chris Parker, others have really showed the importance of anti-immigration and sort of racialized anti-Obama politics uh, we saw Michael Tesler with racial spillover in the Obama presidency. But the point here, the reason I would say analogies to Jim Crow, like this, the new Jim Crow style voting restrictions, like there's some importance of that analogy of saying race is a part of this very clearly. It's central to racial to political conflict over democracy right now in the U.S. Um, there are restrictions on voting and there's but 
Uh, I think gerrymandering is different in that it's much more partisan now rather than racial, although there is still racial gerrymandering, um, but the partisan gerrymandering is really setting records in the 2010s. Um, but the real breakdown of the analogy is that now it's it's entirely nationalized. Um, this is about, you can hear this in focus group uh, uh, about with the Republican voting base. You can hear this everywhere, but it's about the country slipping away. It's not about our local racial hierarchy being upended by sort of a combination of, as Rob Mickey would say, indigenous uh, civil rights activists in these southern uh, localities and states and sort of northern carpetbagger civil rights activists. Like it's not this dynamic of destabilizing a local hierarchy. It's about national conflict, uh, much more about, you know, I'm voting for the person who's like talking trash about the right people in national life on TV and, you know, uh, you know, what people think about Colin Kaepernick and the NFL protests and, you know, Lil Nas X on the Country Music Awards and all of these things. It's a different moment of uh, racial conflict in American politics than the regional one. Um, and that's something that's, uh, it's of course different than the, you know, Civil War period when that became nationalized over uh, uh, the threat to end slavery. But uh, um, now we have to grapple with this new highly national form of racial conflict and how that plays out with respect to democratic institutions. So the Jim Crow analogies, I think uh, it's not about race being central or not, but it's about we're in a, a very different context. So, uh, well, I'll just ask the, how are things, uh, how do you see things proceeding uh, from, from here? Obviously in the 2020 election aftermath, we had all of these uh, problems uh, with the uh, intervention and basic election administration and reporting. Um, on the other hand, there is, there's at least some prospect of, of reforms, uh, of gerrymandering and of, um, at the national level, some of those uh, reporting in electoral college um, uh, procedures. Uh, so where do you th see things going from here? So uh, there is a huge potential for national uh, standards to be set, sort of uh, uh, constitutional anti-hardball through, for example, national gerrymandering bans, right? That would hold the, you know, that would constrain both parties uh, and create new rules to enforce norms. One scary thing is that so much of American democratic institutions have turned out to be norms uh, that elites held to rather than actual formal rules that bound their hands. So uh, the establishment of new rules around gerrymandering, around election administration and registration, um, uh, uh, the Electoral College and the Electoral Count Act with electoral subversion, all those, some potential, but looks, uh, does not look quite likely in this administration. And especially if in the 22, 2022 midterms, partisan control of either uh, the House or Senate changes, then we will not see those things. Um, uh, but without those, I think there's the potential, a small chance, like a non-zero chance of electoral subversion in the 2024 presidential election, as I mentioned. That's, I think, the most proximate, big, explosive threat. But I think that's not, uh, it's a small but non-zero possibility. We should be clear that there are big deal bad things with small probabilities are still really scary and bad. Like, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's like, a huge percent chance, but I think it's enough to really concern us. Um, but I think uh, the other uh, possibility is that we see the trend sort of continue of divergence muddling through uh, not bright line changes in sort of American regime change and so forth, but rather the trend of, again, continued long-term, slow-moving Democratic backsliding in some states and stability or somewhat expansion in other states and uh, uh, you know, trud, uh, trudging through. And anything we didn't get to that you wanted to include or any take home message from Laboratories Against Democracy? Um, I think uh, uh, some other uh, little things, like if we're thinking about how to revitalize American democracy, um, I think uh, one disconnect here is that organizing and political organizations, they have to be federated, localized, social connections, real people, not just sending a check to your DC group or the text to Nancy Pelosi or whatever that, you know, new uh, bright spots in the labor movement are kind of showing that I think with young workers um, and my work with Paul Freimer shows how important that is for multiracial democracy. But then uh, um, the institutions and policy, it's important to be national, to set national baselines. So keeping that both in mind, national policymaking, especially crucial state and local federated organizing also crucial. Thanks so much for having me, man.
There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I can recommend these episodes. Are red and blue states making red and blue policies? Does nationalized media mean the death of local politics? Have conservatives transformed the states? Why do Americans accept democratic backsliding? And U.S. democratic decline in comparative perspective? Please check out Laboratories Against Democracy and then listen in next time.